Chapter Seven of the Ghosts of Piccadilly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Yearsley. The Ghosts of Piccadilly by G. S. Street. Chapter Seven of Burlington House. The memories of Burlington House are mostly commingled with the arts, so much so that as one muses on its history, an impression rather of art than of humanity is predominant. One thinks of one art or another, exampled in varying degrees of excellence, from the time of its first renown until now, when the art of painting flourishes or languishes in its halls. Indeed, if horrid rumour be credited, its first existence is made lurid by an ancient art, that of poisoning, to wit. As a practitioner or patron of an art, almost everybody who lived in Burlington House is known, if known at all. Yet from the haze of dilettantism or achievement, some humanity does emerge, enough to furnish me a chapter. The first Lord Burlington was living here in 1668, and the house was not built until 1665, so that it seems likely that he was the first occupant. According to Pepys, however, the house was built by Sir John Denham, and if that was so, and if he did not build it for the Earl, he may have lived there a year or two. In that case the house began with a note of humanity only too sharp and recognisable, the comedy or tragedy of an old man and a young wife and a lover. The third person was a king's brother, which, for some minds, may give a touch of romance to a squalid story of human weakness and vice. It is all in Grammont, a story most congenial to that lively count, or to Hamilton, his biographer. Sir John Denham was an old man. Grammont says seventy-nine, and rather tiresome research says only fifty. Still fifty counted for old in love affairs when Charles the Second was king. In May 1665 he married Margaret Brooke, who was only seventeen. She was a pretty toy. The Duke of York had been in love with her, on and off, other ladies intervening, for some time. His latest mistress had been Lady Chesterfield, whose lord... It was an act which amazed and disgusted Grammont, carried her off into the country. So he was on with the old love again, and Lady Denham was to be given a place in the Duchess's household, and the usual routine of these affairs was to be followed. Only she died in January 1667. Grammont says that Sir John Denham, unable to follow Lord Chesterfield's example for lack of a country house, sent her on a longer journey. The populace thought he had poisoned her, and was infuriated. Why it should have cared I know not, and had to be appeased with a large distribution of burnt wine at her funeral. It also accused the Duchess of York, or at least Andrew Marville did, who should have known better. Perhaps it was rather sad, as the pretty toy was so young, and had only acted after her kind. Anyway, she was dead, and the Duke of York promptly fell in love with someone else. When I was a very young man I used to read such stories as those in Grammont's memoirs with much pleasure. Nowadays I find them a little banal and monotonous, too unrelieved by fancy or subtlety. They are disagreeable. But this one of Sir John Denham and Margaret Brooke and the Duke of York seems more so than probably it was for one need not suppose she really was poisoned. 
in the seventeenth century there were many cases of alleged poisoning which might have been only cases of medical ignorance people had appendicitis and were bled for it and naturally expired henrietta of england duchess of orleans the most fascinating woman of her days who was thought to have been poisoned with the connivance of that wretched cretin her husband charles the second her brother refused to open the duke's letter announcing her death probably died of peritonitis as for lady denham that simple wanton if her ghost emerges from burlington house into piccadilly save for its dress it will be quite undistinguished in the crowd the original house seems to have been large but comparatively plain built of red brick it had a big garden behind which of course touched the open country horace walpole has been censured for attributing to the first lord burlington the wish to have no building beyond him that is said to be absurd since clarendon house and berkeley house in the west were already standing but he might well have referred to the north there is nothing to say of this lord burlington but i should like to think that his brother robert boyle that gentle and lovable man of science the inventor of the air-pump and an original founder of the royal society came sometimes from pall mall where he lived to dine in piccadilly it was the third earl great-grandson of the first who renewed and embellished and made everything of burlington house with the assistance of colin campbell and in imitation of palladio i do not propose to go into architectural merits and differences the reader can go look for himself that is to say he can still see the first floor which with the ground floor only that is hidden by a portico was left in eighteen sixty six when the rest of the buildings and a beautiful colonnade were destroyed and the present wall and wings such as they are were built for my part in my bigoted love for the plain and simple in london houses i wish the old house of red brick had been left exposed to view it was left encased in stone as the nucleus of the grander mansion the new burlington house and its art-loving owner were the theme of much eulogy and satire the satire in marshall of the fine house with nowhere to eat or sleep was englished for burlington house as it had been for blenheim and hogarth drew two plates caricaturing the taste of the town and the man of taste in the latter pope is splattering the duke of chandos whom he had depreciated as an amateur to exalt his own patron with whitewash and burlington is going up a ladder like a workman this third earl of burlington was the patron of pope and gay and handel he was intimate with swift but you can hardly be said to be the patron of a man whom you allow to bully your wife the characteristic anecdote of the dean is somewhat musty lady burlington i hear you can sing sing me a song she refused and swift said i suppose you take me for one of your poor hedge parsons sing when i bid you she wept and left the room pray madam are you as proud and as ill-natured as when i saw you last no mr dean i will sing to you if you please no modern thinks more of swift's greatness as a writer than i but i wish the lady had answered differently she was lady dorothy saville a clever daughter of a clever family and i think the most interesting memories of burlington house are of her and two other women her unhappy daughter dorothy and mademoiselle violette who became mrs garrick 
poor lady dorothy boyles is the story of a foolish marriage which ended tragically of bitter sorrow and untimely death it is something of a coincidence for the house that she like margaret brooke was seventeen when she married and died not a year afterwards and that her death was laid at her husband's door but here the charge was all too probable and here the victim was innocent she fell in love with lord euston heir of the second duke of grafton and therefore great-grandson of charles the second whose kindly qualities of heart were alas sadly to seek in him he was in fact a brute of the worst reputation report had it that he wanted to marry his brother's widow lady augustus fitzroy but he did marry unhappily for her this poor lady dorothy boyle horace walpole and others agree about the softness and gentleness of her character and the attraction of opposites which may be an excellent provision of nature in the main but when it takes an ill turn is red-hot iron on our nerves may have worked in both at the beginning of her affection at least there seems to be no doubt and one wishes to believe it was that and not the dukedom which persuaded her parents if worldliness it was in them then worldliness has seldom been punished so savagely and so swiftly horace walpole writes to his friend horace mann i wrote you word that lord euston is married in a week more i believe i shall write you word that he is divorced he is brutal enough and has forbade lady burlington his house and that in very ungentle terms the whole family is in confusion the lord of grafton half dead and lord burlington half mad the latter has challenged lord euston who accepted the challenge but they were prevented do you not pity the poor girl of the softest temper vast beauty birth and fortune to be so sacrificed in less than a year this soft affectionate wife was dead of her husband's brutality we read of her from time to time in the interval meeting horace walpole here and there and on one occasion quite honeymoonish with her husband which shows us that the cleverest of social observers do not always observe when she was dead her mother drew her picture and sent it among her friends with an inscription pope was said to have written for her lady dorothy boyle born may the fourteenth seventeen twenty four she was the comfort and joy of her parents the delight of all who knew her angelic temper and the admiration of all who saw her beauty she was married october the tenth seventeen forty one and delivered by death from misery may the second seventeen forty two this picture was drawn seven weeks after her death from memory by her most affectionate mother dorothy burlington so lady burlington fell back on her art for which she had a genuine taste horace walpole attributed the design of one of hogarth's prints to her on her art and her artistic protégés and let us hope found consolation it is some slight comfort to know that lord euston died young in his father's lifetime it would be little reproach to human nature if this fate of the daughter had soured lady burlington's nature sour she appears in walpole's letters but he may have had some personal spite against her since magnanimity does not shine among his virtues he announces her death in seventeen fifty eight in a spirit his best friends must deplore you know that the wife of bath 
Lord Bath's wealthy spouse, is gone to maunder at St. Peter, and before he could hobble to the gate, my Lady Burlington, cursing and blaspheming, overtook other countess, and both together made such an uproar. Shocking bad taste, is it not? One gathers the idea of a masterful woman who hated her foes and managed her friends. Such women are apt to be but poorly requited, for the foes return the hatred, and the friends may forget the kindness and staunchness, while they remember the criticism and regiment. Lady Burlington had many favourites among artists, but the most famous, and I think interesting, of them is the Violetta. This fascinating dancer was one of that numerous band of foreigners, who have taken London by storm, been petted by its society, and finally have had the kindness to settle in comfort among us, in spite of the climate and cold manners they have continued to reproach us withal. There seems to me to be some lack of balance in this matter, for we so seldom hear of English people taking other countries by storm, and being furnished with comfortable livelihoods in them by their admirers. I mean that it is almost unjust to themselves that other countries should export to us so much attractive humanity, and leave us all our own as well. Mademoiselle Violette came to us in 1744, and was welcomed by Lady Burlington, who gave her quarters in Burlington House, and took her everywhere. Who was she? Mr. Joseph Knight, in his excellent book on David Garrick, says that probably she herself was in the dark as to her origin and early history, but contemporary gossips, of course, had plenty of light. One obvious story was that she was Lord Burlington's natural daughter, and they said her mother was an Italian of position. And of course they said this was absolutely confirmed, when on her marriage Lady Burlington settled six thousand pounds on her, though the reasoning appears a little faulty in psychology. She always denied this origin, but according to Rainy Day Smith, she admitted late in life to one of her husband's relations that, although Lord Burlington was not her father, she was of noble birth. In that case, she could not have approved of the other story the gossips had, which was that she was the daughter of a Viennese citizen called Weigel. Weigel equals Weilchen equals Violet, and hence her name at the request, so they said, of Maria Theresa herself. The Empress admired her, and so, unfortunately, did the Emperor, Frederick I, on which account she was packed off to England, travelling in male attire, and so seen on the packet by Dr. Carlyle. The latter part of this story, at least, the Violetta seems to have admitted. However these things were, and whether she came from Florence or Vienna or elsewhere, she must have had, as Mr. Knight points out, some experience as a dancer, since she was engaged immediately for the Haymarket. The king was present at her first performance, and she was soon the rage. She had the fine advertisement of a riot, when she gave an audience two dances instead of the three promised. The fame of the Violetta, writes Horace Walpole in 1740, increases daily. The sister countesses of Burlington and Thanet exert all their stores of sullen partiality in competition for her. And two years later, the old monarch at Hanover has got a new mistress. Now I talk of getting, Mr. Fox has got the ten-thousand-pound prize. And the Violetta, so it is said, Coventry for a husband. It is certain that at the fine masquerade he was following her, as she was under the Countess's arm, who, pulling off her glove, moved her wedding-ring up and down her finger, which it seems was to signify that no other terms would be accepted. 
I rather like this homely significance on the part of my Lady Burlington. The Coventry mentioned, by the way, is not the Earl who married the beautiful Maria Gunning, but plain Mr. Coventry, who was no great parti. She did better when she married David Garrick in 1749. His wooing, however, had not been all roses, for Lady Burlington seems not to have approved him at first. Mr. Walpole writes to George Montague that, at another entertainment, Lady Burlington brought the Violetta, and the Richmonds had asked Garrick, who stood ogling and sighing the whole time, while my lady kept a most fierce lookout. But married they were, and it was a marriage of marriages. Garrick's lines on his wife are well known. "'Tis not, my friend, her speaking face, her shape, her youth, her winning grace, have reached my heart. The fair one's mind, quick as her eyes yet, soft and kind, a gaiety with innocence, and other delightful qualities he enumerates. She seems really to have deserved the praise. Sir Theodore Martin, in his monograph on Garrick, has collected quite a bouquet of nice things said of her by famous men. To be praised, and cordially and sincerely praised, by Wilkes and Stern and Gibbon, a woman must have been worth knowing. We must be allowed to follow her for one moment into her married life, though she passes from Piccadilly after her honeymoon, which was partly spent in Burlington House. Contemporaries were very hard on David Garrick's vanities and foibles. The moderns I have lately mentioned have defended him ably, and so, as was right and proper, has Mr. H. B. Irving. He had his share of the conceits and jealousies common in his vocation, and not unknown in others but as a man there was more to respect in him than by ordinary standards we find in many great artists and whatever virtue he lacked in love and care for his wife he was not lacking for twenty-eight years they were never a day apart she went with him on his famous tour in europe and whatever and wherever his triumphs his wife enjoyed and sweetened them we must not linger over them but one last glance at Violetta we will have. In 1795, eighteen years after her husband's death, we see her thoroughly domesticated in Horace Walpole's neighbourhood, having conciliated the regard of that exigent expert in society, with an hundred head of nieces with her, of whom an elderly fat dame affected at every word to call her aunt, it is pleasant to chronicle a good fortune and domesticity so complete and so well deserved. And now we must go back to Burlington House. It seems unkind to have lingered over Lady Burlington and her friendships, and to say nothing of her lord, who was much considered by so many considerable men. He was a splendid host, housing Handel for three years, and William Kent, the architect, for thirty-two a sort of hospitality, I regret, has become obsolete. But beyond his hospitality and his interest in art, little emerges of personal quality, and we may let the sands of time run on. After his death, Burlington House passed to the Cavendishes. Lord George of that family brought it from the current Duke in 1815, and lived there many years, latterly with the revived title of Burlington, and with his son-in-law, Lord Charles Fitzroy, thus establishing for the house a, a happier connection with the family, from which poor Lady Dorothy had her atrocious husband. 
A daughter of Lord Charles remembers that in her girlhood at Burlington House, bloodhounds went loose in the court at nights, terrific beasts, chained up by day. Lord George was a fine example of the taciturnity remarkable in the Cavendishes, and I take a charming story of him and his brother, the fifth duke, famous for his calmness, and as the husband of Georgiana, from the reminiscences of Sir Algernon West. They stopped for the night at an inn on their way north, and were shown into a room with three beds, one of which had its curtains drawn. Both brothers, in turn, went and looked into the curtained bed, and chose another. Not a word they said until late in the next day, as they continued their journey. Then at last, "'Did you see what was in that bed last night?' asked the Duke. "'Yes, brother,' said Lord George, and again they were silent. The bed had contained a corpse. It was Lord George who made the Burlington Arcade, to prevent people from throwing things over his garden wall, and as the Gentleman's Magazine rather curiously puts it, for the gratification of the public, and to give employment to industrious females. When I was a boy at college, it was the custom, if one went to London for the day, to take a turn in this arcade, which I am afraid we called the drain-pipe, of an afternoon, but I doubt no very gracious ghosts come out of it into Piccadilly. I think there are no other personal memories about Burlington House. It was a great Whig centre at one time, but even ghosts cannot be in two places at once, and Devonshire House claims Fox and Burke far more insistently. We fall back on art again. The Elgin marbles were once in a shed in the courtyard, and the pictures of Messieurs X, Y, and Z, with more distinguished artists, have hung regularly on its walls since the Royal Academy of Arts was housed there. Does the noise of past soirees, interesting and miscellaneous, revive in the nights, or the passions and rivalries and exclusions and tardy admissions which have made such a coil in its history, does the atmosphere of them hang about the house? Let us hope that the ghosts of dead banquets and stereotyped speeches walk not. But one likes to think of Disraeli lauding the pictures he had just been abusing to his neighbour, with a hypocritical humour, Mr. Gladstone thought devilish. Hogarth caricatured the builder of the house. I wonder what he would have thought of its present possessors. Mixed thoughts, it is probable. End of chapter 7